already standing, so please remain standing. We are reading from John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Thank you, Stephanie. Let's, let's pray uh, before we consider this text or as we consider it. Our Father, uh, we are in such need of a word from you. The same voice that spoke the world into existence that is, that is behind everything that we see. It's the, it's the same word that sustains everything that we see. This very moment, this very second, it is being sustained, Hebrews tells us, by the power of your word. So we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. Help me to, to get out of the way and to allow to help your word just say what it says. That your spirit would allow it to penetrate our hearts so that we might experience new creation. The making of all things new that Jesus promised. That's what we want. And we pray that you would give it to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So every week we come together and we talk about this gospel of Jesus, this good news of Jesus. Why all the gospel talk? Well, because we have this keen sense that we need salvation, that we need rescuing. And when I say salvation, I'm not just talking like, kind of what Christians typically think of when they talk of salvation, like save, saving from sin. We need that, for sure. But even more broadly, those outside of, of the faith, there's this sense that we need salvation. A, a, a religious scholar and sociologist named Martin Riesbrot uh, has said this regarding salvation. He, he defines salvation like this. Preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. It's universally human to, to feel as though we need preservation and deliverance from harm, ruin, and loss. 
Because life in a fallen, broken world brings those things into our lives. So we need deliverance from it. Every fiber of our being needs rescue. There's nothing within us that doesn't need salvation. Our emotions need it. Our our physical bodies need to be rescued. Our intellect needs to be rescued from deceit. Our spiritual lives need rescuing. So how does it happen? Well, Christianity has an answer. And the answer is that it happens through our faith. That the power of God is the only thing that can save us. The power of God. You can't, it's, the power of a doctor is not going to save you. The power of a real estate agent that can get you the best deal in the best home, that's not going to save you. The power of the best spouse on the planet is not going to save you. Nothing short of the power of God will save you. That's what we believe. And so next question, how is that power accessed? If it's the power of God that, that, that I must have, how can I access it? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, this is what he says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That the gospel, the message, the message of Jesus unlocks the power of God and brings about salvation. That's our belief. And so every week, we we take the gospel and we turn it like a diamond to look at its multifaceted beauty And just look at it and see it afresh, anew, from a different angle. We want to probe its depths so that it can probe our depths of our heart and bring change. That's what we try to do. And this week, I believe we're going to see a particularly illuminating view of this gospel. Like We're going to really see that diamond this morning. And so you'll see the title. It's a, it's a poolside picture of the gospel. And that's what, that's what we get in this text this morning. So I want us to see three things, three headings. Our sin, Jesus' salvation. And then the third thing is the world hates the salvation that Jesus brings. So our sin, Jesus' salvation. And then thirdly, the world hates the salvation that Jesus brings. That's the final point. Sounds like we're ending, ending on a downer, doesn't it? But we'll... We'll, we'll get there. Just hang tight. Okay. So, now, talking our sin, I'm, I've got like three little subpoints under that heading, our sin. So, the, 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 the first thing is that sin breaks us. So, Jesus, he's been, he's been making his circuit. His ministry is taking him throughout the area, and he's back in Jerusalem, and he's in a place where sheep are sold. And this is sheep gate. And there's this pool there that has healing powers. It can bring about healing. And so as a result, there are these what John calls invalids, like people that the world just says, nope. There's certain people that have value in the world, and there's other people that don't. And we discard the ones that, ha- that as we see it, have no value. And so all of these invalids congregate around the pool because the pool has healing powers, it's believed. And we'll explain that more in just a moment. But there's this one man there, and he's been there for a long time. I mean, 38 years he's had this problem. Long time. And whether he's been like right there for 38 years, 
We don't know. But he hasn't moved much because he's immobile. He doesn't have anyone to move him around. So he's stuck. And so Jesus says, verse 14, now this is following the healing. I want us to, 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 to look here, though, to this first point that sin breaks us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14 there. He says to the, to the man, after the man's healed, he says, see, you are well. And then look what he says. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Underneath that comment is an assumption. And the assumption is this. And Jesus knows, knows what's going on here. This man's lameness, his, his inability to walk, his ailment, is a result of his sin. That's what Jesus says. Sin no more so that nothing worse than what had happened to you in your life would happen to you. And that's what sin does. Sin had, for this man in particular, it had created a brokenness between the man's brain and his limbs and his bones and his muscles so that the two didn't work in sync with one another. There was a problem. There was brokenness. There was a breakdown between how his body was intended to function and how it actually functioned because it didn't function. It was dysfunctional. And this is what Cornelius Plantinga calls sin. He gives a great definition of sin. He calls it a disruption of shalom. Now, you probably recognize the word shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace, and it means more than just like lack of war. Shalom means universal flourishing. It means the, the, the cohering of all things, that, that, that everything in the universe, in the world, is to come together harmoniously, lovingly, peacefully. Shalom. And what this man has experienced is a disruption of that in his, in his bones, in his muscles. And it's keenly felt for him. It's broken his body. And there's a dysfunction to his bones, to his muscles. Now, this is important. I am not saying that every time there's somebody with a physical ailment that is a direct result of personal sin in their life. The scriptures say that's not true at all. Um, that, that's, not, that's not always the case, right? Job's friends got into a lot of trouble because they said, well, you've got this suffering, Job. This, you know, let's peel back the layers. Where's the sin behind it? What's the sin behind it? Right? We, we run into problems if we assume that. But Jesus can assume it because he knows all things. He knows why this man was, was in this condition. But here's what we can say with certainty. That any sort of disruption of shalom in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own bodies, it's all the result of sin. If you feel suffering in your life, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a consequence of sin. It may be the consequence of another sin. It may be the consequences of sins we have no idea. People we don't even know. Our impact can be, we're both culprits and victims of sin in this world. Sin is messy. It doesn't have like an exact relationship. It's messy. And it always brings a breakdown. It breaks down our bodies and we die. It breaks down our relationships and there's strain. It breaks down our intellect and we don't think straight. It breaks down our, our, our psychology. We don't feel and think the way we ought. 
You could think of sin as like the ocean, and it's just crashing against the shore, and it's breaking down the rock, and it's breaking it down over long periods of time, and eventually you're left with little tiny grains of rock called sand. And that's what sin does. Slowly, cumulatively, it breaks things down. That's what it does. But it also, and this is the second subheading for sin, it also immobilizes us. It immobilizes us. This man was immobile. He couldn't move. And he had been that way for 38 years. 38 years. What were you doing 38 years ago? Were you alive 38 years ago? And that's a long time. Think of all the things that you've done, the, the schooling that you've done, the sport teams that you played on, the piano recitals that you went to, the places you visited, the countries you visited, the, the spouse you found, the kids that you've had, the kids that you're raising, the trips that you've taken with them. Think of all the things you've done in the last 38 years. And what had this man been doing? He's waiting, sitting, watching, hoping that maybe he can get a little dip into a pool 10 feet away from him. That's what he's been doing for 38 years. And maybe he's not exactly there, but he's been near there. This, is, this has been his hope for decades, this pool. And for decades, he's watched his chances slip by. He doesn't have the physical ability to get to the pool. He doesn't have the, uh, the, the relational ability to get people to help him get to the pool or the smarts to kind of figure out an alternative way. He, doesn't, he lacks physical strength. He lacks wit. He lacks, lacks emotional intelligence. He probably isn't getting, who knows, but he can't get 10 feet. He's trying for 38 years. That's his big problem. And this is what sin does, though. It takes us nowhere. It takes us nowhere. We're spinning our wheels. We're like uh, Sisyphus, pushing the rock up the hill, up the hill to the very top of the hill, and then it rolls back down. And then we push it up, push it up, and then it rolls back down for eternity. We're just, we're going nowhere. There, there, there's no movement. And the author of Ecclesiastes, I think, highlights this really well when it's describing life in a fallen, sinful world. It's, you know, the, uh, Solomon says in, in Ecclesiastes that everything is meaningless. That the sun, it rises in the east. It ri rises in the east. And it comes across and it makes its way down and it sets in the west and then it returns to the place from which it rose and then it does it again and it just keeps going in these circles and the wind that comes from the north and it blows down uh, southward and then it makes its way around and then it comes back again from the north again and blows southward and the streams, they keep pouring themselves into the sea. And is the sea ever filled up? Does it ever work? No, it just keeps going and going and the sea is never filled. It's futility. It's moving in circles. It's spinning your wheels. This is what life in a fallen world does. It feels like we're going somewhere. Like, sure, we're moving. In fact, we may be moving quite a bit. Conquering the parenting world or conquering the work world or conquering academia. 
conquering our, our, our you know, sales or whatever it is. And then we get to the end of it and we realize, what was the point of all of that? We're moving just like the streams. They're moving, they're bustling, they're making noise, they're splashing, they're cruising along. And then you realize it never fills up. Like it, it, never, it never delivers. The thing that you thought those things would deliver, they don't deliver. They don't provide what you were hoping they would provide. They can't bear the weight of your dreams and wishes and desires for them to bear. Well, here's the thing. This invalid, this lame man, realizes he, he's in a better position to understand that sin takes us nowhere because his physical condition is such that he can go nowhere. His physical condition is a picture of his spiritual condition. And so he gets it in a way that the crowds that are hustling and bustling for 40 years, don't, they don't understand it. He gets it. His physical condition is a, is a corollary of his spiritual condition and ours as well. Ours too. This is what sin does. It takes us on the road, the fast track to nowhere. That's what sin does. So it breaks us, it immobilizes us, and then there's a third thing that sin does. It blinds us. It blinds us. And we see this not in the lame man, but the people around the lame man. I mean, what's his problem in this story? His problem is that he, he needs access to that pool that he's just standing by or sitting by or whatever he's there next to. He needs access to it. So here was the belief, and some even manuscripts include this uh, in them, but the, the belief was that, that an angel, an invisible angel would come down, touch the pool, create a disturbance in the water, a stirring, and then up the angel would go, and the person that could get to the pool first would experience healing. And so his big problem is he can't get down to that pool quick enough because somebody beats him every time. That's his problem. Can you believe that for nearly four decades, not one person would say, let's give the little guy a chance. Let's give this poor fellow a chance and help him get to it. Let's figure out a way. Let's come together. He's been here long enough, right? He's got seniority here. Let's pick him up and let's take him down so that he can be healed. Never happened. 40 years. Nobody does that. How do you explain that? Because sin blinds us. It makes us oblivious to the needs of others. It gets us so bent on ourselves that we don't take the time to see the need and the brokenness around us. We're incapable of loving our neighbor as we ought, as we're supposed to. Sure, we'll throw like you know we'll throw a bone to somebody that um, has need to kind of assuage our own moral conscience and help us feel feel better about ourselves. But if it's costly, we don't want to we don't want to do it. That's what sin does. It 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 puts the blinders on us. There was about a decade ago. I can remember reading a post about um, Nazi Germany and that in you know if you if you 
consider how many concentration camps there were in Germany. It's often said about 25, 23, 25, I believe. And, but this article said there were actually like over 1,000 concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And to put that in perspective, the size of Germany and the population of Germany, concentration camps in Germany in, in, during the Nazi regime were as common as McDonald's in America. That's how it works out. So here's the point. They, the German people knew what was going on in those concentration camps. They heard the noises. They smelled the smells. They knew what was taking place. There's no way they couldn't. But how did they deal with that? They just they looked the other way. Swept it under the rug. Nothing to see here. Out of sight, out of mind. That's what sin does. And we're no different. We're, that's fallen humanity. That's not just Nazi Germany. That's fallen humanity. We look the other way. Sin blinds us to the needs of others. Okay, so sin breaks us. It conveniently blinds us to the brokenness of the world, and it takes us on a path to nowhere. Now, let's, let's consider Jesus' salvation, the second heading. And we've got a few points here. The first point under Jesus' salvation is that Jesus sees need. Jesus sees need. Note the contrast. We ignore the outcast, the most invalid of invalids. We, we, we ignore. It complicates our lives. It burdens our lives. So we kind of look the other way. But Jesus goes straight to the man. It's like he can, he can smell the most the person in, with the greatest need. And that's where, he, that's where his heart is tugged to that person. And that's where he goes. Verse 6, he came to him. And he also came to us. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel. He actually came. The prologue, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Did he left his heavenly throne? And did he come down to lord himself over everyone? No, he became a servant to pour his energies and his powers out for others. Bruce Waltke, a commentator, has, uh, he's written a commentary on the Proverbs. And in it, he says, if you want to summarize the Proverbs, the Proverbs are this. Righteousness is good. Wickedness is bad. And here's what, So what's righteousness? Righteousness is this. This is a summary of the Proverbs. Righteousness is when a person disadvantages themselves for the advantage of others. That's what righteousness is. Wickedness is advantaging ourselves individually at the disadvantage of others. It's just that simple. And the, the, the work of Jesus is this beautiful display of righteousness that Jesus disadvantaged himself for the advantage of, of, of others, right? Of the world, of his church. We don't like to be disadvantaged. You know, it, it takes time and we're busy. It takes energy. I mean, what if, what if they have lice? I mean, it, it may cost us something. It may cost us more than just a headache or broke, a time wasted at least wasted, in our minds. 
The whole arrival of Jesus was a disadvantaging of himself for the advantage of others. So that's the first kind of heading under his salvation is that he came. The second is that he extends salvation. He doesn't force it. Verse 6, he asks him, do you want to be healed? He doesn't just heal him. He, he says, do you want to receive what I have to offer? That's the question that he poses. And, you know, one of the big ironies here in this gospel, we've talked about it already, is that the one that's bringing life and salvation came into his own and his own didn't receive him. He came into the world and the world largely rejected him. How, how ironic that that's the case. So that, that was that second point. His, his, the salvation doesn't force it, but he, he, um, he offers it. The second thing, or the third thing, I'm sorry, is that Jesus' Jesus's salvation scraps our agenda. It scraps our agenda. We all have an agenda. Remember last week we talked about genie Jesus, who we rub the Jesus lamp and out pops Jesus, and he says, what do you want me to do? I'm here for you, buddy. My wish is your command. And that's how we oftentimes think of the Christian faith. We wouldn't put it quite that boldly, but we think, okay, I've got an agenda. I've got dreams. And so, so long as Jesus can fit into that agenda and help boost my dreams and, and agenda, then I'll take him. But what does Jesus do? He scraps our agenda entirely. And he does so here. This man has had an agenda for 38 years. What's his agenda? Get 10 feet to that pool. That's my agenda. It's all I care about. And he still thinks that's what his need, what his need is. He, he reduces his need to his physical state. He doesn't quite get to the spiritual. And that's, that's, what it, that's, that's the problem with our agenda, right? We think we understand what we need or how our life needs to go, but we don't. Jesus does. This man thinks that he needs, his agenda is, if I could get a little pick-me-up, then I could be saved. I mean, this is what he says in verse 7, 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And so Jesus doesn't submit to his agenda. He gives him a new agenda, which brings us to the fourth point here um, on Jesus' salvation. And that is that his salvation is powerful. His salvation transforms. It eradicates the effects of sin, and it does so in an instant, in a flash. Verse 9, at once the man was healed, took his bed, and he walked. See, the, man, the man's agenda was, if I could just get someone to be a means to the pool, then I could be saved. And Jesus says, no, I'm not a means, like I am salvation. I'm the pool. You've been looking at the wrong thing the whole time. You don't need a little pick-me-up to get you somewhere else. What you need is me. And you need my word. And my word is powerful. It explodes. It's the word that brought you into existence. It's the word that's sustaining you right now. And so my word is so powerful that if I say fix... Instantly, at once, you're fixed. That's the power of my word. And that's what you need. It instantly transforms. Now, 
we might think here that, you know, so the man's 38 years, he's been there, probably nobody's even been there that long to observe this, the duration of this man's waiting. And he's healed, and he walks home, and we would think that there would be like much rejoicing, and the crowd, everyone goes home happy, delighting, praising the Lord for what they had seen that day. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens at all. Which brings us to this final consideration heading, and that is the world hates his salvation. The world hates the salvation that Jesus brings. And as we've said, this is one of the grand ironies of, of the coming of Christ, is that the world largely rejects it. And this is true of, of you know, Jesus coming into his own, that the, the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders in the halls of power in Jerusalem where Jesus gets his strongest resistance, they reject him. They don't want him. They don't just reject him. They actively seek his death. So what's the technical point here? The point, well, first, they see this man walking with his bed on the Sabbath, which he was not supposed to do on the Sabbath. That was one of the many rules on the Sabbath that you couldn't walk with your bed. And so he's doing that. But then they, they, they're not so worried about, as much about this guy as they are about Jesus when they find out why the man was walking with his bed. It's because Jesus healed him. And it says, verse 16, that the Jews were persecuting him. That's what the word says. It's an interesting word choice because what it really means is that they were actively pursuing a case against Jesus. They were building their case. Just like a lawyer is carefully and meticulously assembling evidence to put together a case, that's what they're doing. They're building their case against him. And so, uh, and so they're doing that on the Sabbath, by the way. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And Jesus' response to them is this, verse 17. What does he say? My father is working until now, and I am working. The Sabbath is for man. But I don't know if you've noticed this. God is at work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath still happens. And the reason it happens is because God is sustaining it with his word. He's speaking it into existence every second of every Sabbath. It's being, it's being created. Life is created on the Sabbath. There's babies that are born on the Sabbath. God's judgment comes on the Sabbath. There's people that die on the Sabbath. God is at work on the Sabbath. And so here's the implication. I am God, therefore I can do these things. In the other Gospels, you remember what Jesus says? Is it better to take a life on the Sabbath or to give life on the Sabbath? That's his rhetorical question to them. And, and I think that's, I mean, he doesn't say that in this text, but the same thing could be said here, right? Irony of ironies, right? What are they doing on the Sabbath? They're working to take a life. They're mad at Jesus for working on the Sabbath, and they are actively gathering themselves together, meeting and assembling a case against him on the Sabbath for giving life on the Sabbath. The world hates it, but it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, you, to the degree that you don't like the arrival of, of Christ and you reject it, you become this bundle of contradictions. Right? 
abundant. We talk to Jesus about Jesus like he's, like he's oxygen. We need oxygen to breathe. We need Jesus to live spiritually, physically, everything. He sustains us. We need him to live. If we say we don't want Jesus, it's like I don't want oxygen. Well, I just took some. Every, every, between every breath I made, I took a bit of oxygen. You can't even reject him apart from embracing him to a degree because he's given you the life that you're rejecting him with. You become this bundle of contradictions. And yet much of the world, we learn in John's gospel, rejects him. In fact, you will reject him unless the spirit comes into you and does a work of, of recreation and awakens you to Christ. That's what sin does. It blinds us not just to, our, to others, but it blinds us to God. That God is here walking in our midst and we, we kill him. That's what sinful humanity does. So do you see the picture of the gospel that's presented here? Do you see our sin? Do you see the way that sin breaks us apart? Personally, relationally, within the world, within, as, it can, as it relates to material things, it, it creates breakdown. Do you see the way sin immobilizes us and puts us on the fast track to nowhere? Do you see the way sin blinds us to the needs of others and to God himself? Now, I know that here we have wounds all of us carry with us wounds. And maybe they're not 38 years old. Maybe they're, maybe they're older than 38 years. Maybe they're five decades, six decades, seven decades old, eight decades that we've been carrying with us of wounds. Maybe just five years. Maybe it's a couple years. Maybe it was last week you experienced a wound. But we have all this, these layers of brokenness, not as visible as the lame man, but just as powerful, just as paralyzing in our lives. And do you see how Jesus disadvantaged himself so that he might advantage you, so that he might penetrate you and your wounds and mend them and fix them and put them back together to bring your life back together? That's what he does. And he also helps us to see the needs of others. Right? We love because he first loved us. That when his love hits us, all of a sudden the blinders fall away and all of a, we can now see our neighbor. We see their need and we, we're able to go and to love, not worried about the time or the co complexity that it adds or the lies or what, you know, whatever the thing is. That's what his love does. It's something that the world hates. It's something that the world hates, that, that, that as the Spirit comes into us, makes us anew, it, it makes us like Christ, it makes us his body, we become a colony of heaven. What we're seeing is Jesus walks around ancient, uh, the ancient Near East, walks around Palestine as we're seeing heaven come down and the healing and the power that it brings into the world. And what the church is, 
is a colony of heaven, a place where these things are realized, where these wounds are healed. But it, it, it takes time. It takes decades. It happened in an instant for this man, right? And that was to demonstrate to us that it does happen, that his promises are true, that his word can be trusted. He hasn't promised instant fixes for us. It may take a lifetime for us to be healed, but he will heal them nonetheless. And he is. Remember the sand? Sin, the sin of this world is like waves crashing upon the rock and breaking things down. And what Jesus is doing by the power of his spirit is he's picking up every little grain of sand and he's putting it together. And he's putting it together into something even more beautiful than what was there before. Because it demonstrates his glory, his ability to bring this kind of transformation, this kind of salvation that we all need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this picture of your gospel, of your good news, of Jesus, of our sin, which we need to be reminded of. And we pray that it would drive us to Jesus and that we would find our healing and transformation and salvation in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.